2007, James Cameron, the director of the movie Titanic, claimed in a documentary that he had found the family tomb of Jesus. Now, what's this discovery all about? Well, in 1980, in Talpiat, a suburb of Jerusalem, a large tomb containing 10 ossuaries. An ossuary is a box for holding bones. The ossuary engraved with the name Jesus, son of Joseph. This is what they allege to be the ossuary of Jesus Christ. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. This is a program that presents the truth of Jesus Christ and answers the sometimes difficult questions that all of us ask about God. And we want to remind you that there are a multitude of resources available online at evidenceandanswers.org. There you'll find everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Check it out today. Well, Pat, everybody loves a good conspiracy, and conspiracy theories are all over the Internet and all over television programs. Unfortunately, the person of Jesus has not escaped this, and people have all kind of conspiracy theories regarding him as well. Right, Kevin. You know, Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not risen from the dead, that our faith is in vain. And there have been several attempts to explain away the resurrection, and throughout the generations, several attempts have been made, and they have all failed. They include the disciples stole the body or the hallucination theory that the disciples imagined the resurrection of Christ or dreamed it or that the Roman or Jewish authorities stole the body or the swoon theory that Jesus didn't die but was unconscious on the cross and the rest in the tomb revived him somehow or the legend theory that Christ was not a real person that all these events are legendary. All these attempts to give an alternative explanation to the resurrection have all failed. However, recently there have been several creative attempts to present an alternate explanation for the resurrection of Christ, and this is what we're going to examine. When dealing with the resurrection, there are several indisputed facts that we must account for. I think Dr. Gary Habermas, in his work, studied nearly 500 New Testament scholars from various persuasions, from liberal and skeptics to conservative evangelical scholars, and he discovered that there are several facts that were all agreed upon. First, that Jesus died by means of crucifixion. Now, Roman historians uh, Tacitus and Lucian of Samosota and Mara Bar Serapion, these are non-Christian Roman historical works. They conclude that Jesus died by means of crucifixion. So do the Jewish sources of Josephus and the Talmud. They attest to this fact. In fact, liberal critic and the, one of the leaders of the Jesus Seminar, the Jesus Seminar, which met several years ago and came to conclude that 90% of the Gospels are legendary, one of the leaders, John Dominic Croissant, stated this, that he, Jesus, was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Wow. So here you have one of the most liberal critics stating that Jesus died by means of crucifixion, and this is one of the historical facts that is not disputed. Second, the tomb site was known and was empty. The apostles preached resurrection in the same city where Jesus was crucified. So this is very significant because if their message was false, it could have easily been disproved. The tomb site was known. The gospel writers go out of their way to tell you where Jesus was buried, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Jewish council. And it would have been a disaster for these gospel writers to pick such a high-profile public leader and say Christ is buried in this man's tomb because that information can be easily verified when you pick such a high-profile leader. And Paul, in Acts 26:26, when he is preaching, it he preaches, and the apostles all preach this way. He appeals to this event, saying that everyone knew of it. He says, you know of this because it did not happen in a corner. So when the apostles are preaching, they're preaching and they're referencing events that the audience knows about. So the tomb site was known as empty is number two. Number three, 
you have numerous resurrection appearances. Jesus' followers reported that he appeared to them bodily after his death and burial. We have that throughout the Gospels, and Paul writes extensively about that in 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection accounts in the Gospels have the marks of a genuine historical account. There's several uh, evidences for that. One we call the principle of embarrassment, that the writers include many embarrassing facts, you know, that they were cowering in fear while it was only the women who were brave enough to go to the tomb and that the first recorded witnesses were women. And this fact would have been a disaster or extremely unlikely if the story were fabricated because, you know, it's at this time the Jewish courts did not regard the testimony of women as reliable. So it has all the makings, all the evidences of being a historical account. Then you have the life of the transformed apostles. I mean, what accounts for the sudden transformation of these apostles from being cowardly, frightened men who are hiding, suddenly, within a couple of weeks, returning back into Jerusalem, into the city where Jesus was crucified and preaching in front of the authorities who crucified Christ, a message they knew would bring them a life of persecution, suffering, and death. All were persecuted for their message except John, and even John lived a persecuted life. He was thrown in jail, we know, near the end of his life. So if the tomb were not really empty and the apostles had not really seen the risen Christ, what could have motivated them to face the persecution and death for what they knew to be a lie? And one thing history shows us, men and women will not die for what they know and can confirm to be a lie. They will not. Fifth, we have a massive Jewish societal transformation. What explains thousands of Jews giving up key tenets of their Jewish faith? such as worship on the Sabbath. You know, they began worshiping on Sunday, the day Jesus rose. Worshiping on Saturday is one of the Ten Commandments. You know, what explains their surrendering of this key doctrine? What explains thousands of Jews no longer worshiping or sacrificing animals at the temple? Well, they believe that Christ had fulfilled the sacrificial law. But what accounts for them suddenly giving up? that worship at the Jerusalem temple. Next, we have the origin of the church that was built on the foundation of the preaching of the resurrection. How could this have happened if it were false? And finally, we have that the preaching begins in Jerusalem. It's one of the, and this is significant because this is probably the worst city to preach a false message. If the crucifixion and resurrection had not happened, the eyewitnesses are all there. They saw the events. They saw Jesus. They knew of the tomb. If these events had not occurred when the apostles began preaching in that very city where they say these events occurred, if it was false, there's just too many eyewitnesses who could discredit their account. So you've heard the traditional explanations that have tried to present an alternative explanation, but they have failed over the years to give a credible, valid alternative explanation. They do not, cannot accommodate all these facts that I just presented here. If you look at the evidence, the most reasonable explanation is that a miracle occurred that Christ rose from the dead. So- well, let's, let's give an example here. So uh, the empty tomb, the tomb was found empty. Well, the stolen body theory could account for that, but it can't, it can't account for what? Well, it can't account for the transformation of the disciples. If the disciples came and stole the body, well, first of all, how could they have stolen the body? You know, the, the theory says that they came at night and stole the body while the soldiers were asleep. Well, how were they able to move a two-ton stone up an incline in absolute silence and not disturb one of the guards? And also, as we stated, history shows men and women will not die for what they know and can confirm to be a lie. They might die for something they think is true, but they certainly people certainly don't die for what they know is false. Right, that is correct. And so 
you know, how do you explain that suddenly the disciples turn around, come back into Jerusalem, preach a message they know is going to bring them a life of persecution and death, but not only for them, for their family members and friends who are going to follow in their teaching. You know, what accounts for that sudden transformation? Any explanation of the resurrection or the empty tomb must account for these facts that were all agreed upon. Well, let's take a look at some of these new alternative explanations that have come up in recent years. First, in March 2007, James Cameron, the director of the movie Titanic, claimed in a documentary that he had found the family tomb of Jesus. Now, what's this discovery all about? Well, in 1980, in Talpiat, a suburb of Jerusalem, a large tomb containing 10 ossuaries, an ossuary is a box for holding bones used by wealthy people of that time, was discovered. Now, six of the ossuaries had names inscribed on them, and they were Jesus, son of Joseph, Mariamne, a Mara, which they translated Mary the Master, Maria, Mattia, or Matthew, Judah, son of Jesus, and Joseph. Now, the ossuary engraved with the name Jesus, son of Joseph, this is what they allege to be the ossuary of Jesus Christ. Mariamne, a Mara, is alleged to be Jesus' wife, Mary Magdalene. And Cameron believed that this tomb contained, therefore, the body of Jesus, his wife, Mary Magdalene, and their son, Judas, or Judah, and uh, Joseph, Jesus' brother, mentioned in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. And this is the theory that was presented by James Cameron in March of 2007. The theory is built on some fishy facts, Hollywood hype, and a bunch of highly unlikely scenarios. First, the tomb was no mystery. Kevin, it was discovered in 1980. And the top archaeologists who worked on this site saw no connection to Jesus or any New Testament character. I mean, Professor Amos Cloner, who worked on the tomb, didn't associate the crypt with Jesus. And he stated that this was a non-event and dismisses Cameron's efforts as crass prophet-seeking. Joe Zayas, who was the curator for anthropology and archaeology at the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem from 72 to 97 and personally numbered these ossuaries, stated that Cameron is not an archaeologist and projects like these make a mockery of the archaeological profession. So the fact that top archaeologists see no connection between these tombs and have even spoken out strongly against Cameron and his work should have us questioning Cameron's assertions. Also, Joseph and Jesus were from Nazareth, not Jerusalem. And so the family grave would be in Nazareth or Bethlehem. And Joseph died many years before Jesus' ministry began, so it's highly unlikely that he's buried in Bethlehem. I mean, it's highly likely he's buried in Bethlehem or Nazareth, not Talpiat, a suburb of Jerusalem. They were simply pilgrims to Jerusalem. Joseph and Jesus, nor his surviving family, could reasonably have afforded this tomb site. I mean, the authors of the book on the family tomb of Jesus, they admit this type of tomb was used only for the wealthy. And let me quote uh, from page 27 of their book here. It says, Only the religious, political, and economic elite could afford family crypts or tombs in which to store ossuaries. Now, the inscription on the tomb reads, Jesus, son of Joseph. That's fishy here. Why is that? Well, it's a title that was not used of Jesus or his close followers. It was used only of, of enemies or outsiders. The friends of Christ called Jesus Son of David, Christ, Lord, Teacher, or Master. So we're going to have to ask ourselves, would family members and disciples give him a title that they never used or called him by during his lifetime? Then we have James, the brother of Jesus. And Eusebius records that James was killed at the Jerusalem Temple Mount and he was buried 
in a grave near the Jerusalem Temple Mount. Now, this would be very strange if Jesus had died 30 years earlier and his family tomb was there in Talpi at Jerusalem. Why is James buried all alone in Jerusalem when Jesus and the family tomb and James here, the leader of the apostles, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, mentioned in Mark chapter 6, why is he buried all alone in the Jerusalem Temple Mount and not in the family tomb? And another questionable fact, there are other non-family members in the tomb. Cameron alleges that the ossuary labeled Matthew is the disciple Matthew. However, he's not a family member. So why is he in that tomb and James, the brother of Jesus, buried alone? So you've got some fishy facts, Kevin. Then, then you've got a bunch of Hollywood hype. You know, Cameron claims that there's only a 1 in 600 chance that there could be someone named Jesus, son of Joseph. However, when you look at the evidence, the names on the crypt are, were very common in that day. I mean, Jesus was a very popular name during that time. Yeshua, Joshua, God is salvation. Yeah, very popular name. Yeah. <laughs> right, I, I would say that parallels Jesus in the Mexican culture. Now, the name Jesus or Yeshua is found on 99 other tombs and 22 other ossuaries during that time. Even in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 11, there is a disciple named Jesus who is called Justice in Colossians chapter 4, verse 11. Secondly, the name Joseph is the second most popular name at that time. It's found in 218 graves and 45 ossuaries. And Mary was one of the most popular female names of that time. Reportedly, one-fourth of the women in Jerusalem were named Mary. In fact, there are six Marys named in the Gospels. So finding a tomb that has the name Jesus, son of Joseph, in another ossuary with the name Mary is like finding a tomb today that says John, son of James, and a coffin nearby with the name Susan. I mean, these are common names. The ratios given by Cameron in his book are just overblown, exaggerated. It's Hollywood hype. And finally, we have some unlikely scenarios. There's, there's no evidence Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. The Greek inscription on the tomb is Mariamne a Mara. Now, the filmmaker incorrectly translates this Mary known as the Master. Scholars have studied this, and it's most likely two names. Two bones of women are placed in that ossuary. It's probably properly translated Mary and Martha. Then we're going to have to assume this unlikely scenario. Cameron alleges that the body of Jesus was stolen. Well, the tomb site was known. The gospel writers identified Joseph of Arimathea, and Jesus was buried in a tomb on Friday evening. Now, somewhere within a day, the body of Christ would have to be stolen, which is a highly unlikely scenario that the disciples could get past these guards unnoticed somehow. And then this large gravesite, if you look at the pictures of this gravesite, it's a large gravesite, would have to be purchased and the body stolen. And all this happened within a day. Not only that, the apostles would have known of the site and that Jesus had not risen from the dead. And history shows us men will not die for what they know and can confirm to be a lie. They would not go to their death knowing they were lying about the resurrection and send their family members and friends to a death for what they knew to be a lie. This also is unable to account for the numerous resurrection appearances that have been written about. Also, the tomb site would have been known by many. A prominent figure like Jesus, a well-marked large tomb site like this, would have been very, very difficult, highly unlikely, that they could keep it a secret from anyone else. And this theory suggests that a, a secret burial ground unknown to anyone uh, but Jesus and his family, therefore, you know, is untenable. His enemies wished to secure the tomb. If you read the gospel accounts, they knew that Jesus spoke of some kind of resurrection, Matthew 27. So uh, the authorities would have made sure that the body would not be stolen. So Cameron's theory 
falls apart in many areas. You've got some fishy facts, you've got Hollywood hype, and you've got some highly unlikely scenarios. And the fact that many of the major men who have worked on this discount Cameron's theory just shows you that this theory is more myth. It's not a theory that can hold up under the scrutiny of good historical investigation. Well, we can scratch that one off the list as a conspiracy. Certainly doesn't account for our list of facts that these conspiracy theories have to account for. What else do we have? Well, another one that popped up in 2006 that made headlines was the discovery of the Gospel of Judas. And supposedly this gospel presents new insights on the life of Christ and especially the motive for his death. And according to this gospel, Judas was the hero, not the villain. And according to this work, Christ asked Judas to betray him and send him to the cross because Christ wanted to escape his body and free his soul so that it could make its journey through the universe and unite with the one. Now, this gospel was discovered in 78 by a farmer in a cave near Elmina, Egypt. And scholars date this Egyptian or Coptic text to have been written about three to 400 AD. And most scholars believe the original text was written in Greek and that the original manuscript may have been written somewhere in the middle of the second century. Now, this is one of many Gnostic Gospels that were discovered in Egypt. Gnosticism taught that the material world was evil and that the spiritual world was pure. So for this reason, Gnostics taught that Jesus could not have a material body, or other schools taught that <clears throat> Jesus was a man and the divine element entered him at baptism and left him on the cross when his mission was over. And Gnosticism taught that we all, like Christ, may attain oneness with the divine through secret mystical knowledge, and only those who are worthy to be given this kind of knowledge would escape the prison house of their body so that their soul could traverse and attain oneness with the divine. So, in the Gospel of Judas, Jesus was a Gnostic who saw Judas as the only one worthy of receiving this secret knowledge. And Jesus' real mission was to teach this secret knowledge of Gnosticism and then escape his impure physical body so his divine spirit could travel through the universe and unite with the divine. So in the Gospel of Judas, Jesus passes on this secret knowledge to Judas to betray him so that he may escape his body and journey through the universe. And Jesus instructs Judas in this Gospel saying this, But you, Judas, will exceed all of them, for you will sacrifice the man that clothes me. So this Gospel presents a completely different understanding on God, the world, the nature of Christ, his mission, salvation, and human existence. In other words, the Gospel of Judas presents a message that is contrary to the New Testament in many significant ways. What is our response to this Gospel? Well, first it teaches Gnostic philosophy, which contradicts biblical teaching in many ways. That should give us a clue right there. Right. It is not a work inspired by the Apostles. It's inconsistent with what the Apostles wrote. It's part of the Gnostic Gospels that were found in Egypt. Second, this work presents a very different Jesus than that presented in the New Testament, and John even warns us of this pre-Gnostic heresy that he sees coming over the horizon. Third, the message of this work is contrary to the Gospels and that preached by Christ that he came to die for the sins of the world. Uh, the stories are mythical, typical of Gnostic myths in the other Gnostic works. Early in this Gospel, it states that Jesus often did not appear to his disciples as himself, but he was found among them as a child. And finally, the Gospels, this Gospel, is written too late, mid-2nd century AD, at the very earliest. Part of what makes an inspired work and part of the New Testament is that it had to be written by an apostle or a very close associate. Judas died even before Christ did, so there's no way that he could have written this 
this gospel. It's dated at the earliest, mid-2nd century. And if Judas died before Jesus, there's no way Judas could have written this gospel. So this gospel of Judas gives us no insight into the life of Christ. Instead, it gives us insight into Gnostic philosophy. There's very little of historical value there. It just gives us a better understanding of what the Gnostics believe. I would certainly, if I were doing an historical investigation, try to go to the earliest sources we have, those closest to the events, rather than something hundreds of years later, a couple of hundred years later. Exactly, Kevin. And finally, we have this third one called Gabriel's Vision. In July of 2008, Time Magazine came out with an article. They announced the discovery of a three-foot-high tablet called Gabriel's Vision and stated that this tablet could pose one of the greatest threats to the historicity of the resurrection. And a book will be coming out in Christmas of 2008 on this discovery. Now, what is this this discovery? Well, a three-foot-high tablet with 87 lines of Hebrew text was found in the Jordan. Many believe this tablet may have been part of the Dead Sea Scrolls find written by the uh, Dead Sea community. They're the uh, Essenes who lived in the Qumran community. Now, what is this tablet? Well, it was an apocalyptic text describing the end of the world, and it refers to a conflict between Rome and Simon, a Jewish leader in the first century BC. Now, line 80 states that in three days, something will occur as ordered by the angel Gabriel. Now, what that event is, we do not know because the words are missing. Now, a Jewish scholar named Cole believes that the words are this, in three days, you shall live. Speaking of a resurrection of Simon the rebel who led the battle against the Romans, he was killed, and he believes this should be translated in three days, you shall live, speaking of Simon, that he will be resurrected on the third day. Well, what's the significance of this? Well, the Time Magazine writer Van Biema believes that this poses one of the greatest threats to the resurrection. He says here, and I quote, A three-foot-high tablet, romantically dubbed Gabriel's vision, could challenge the uniqueness of the idea of the Christian resurrection. This, in turn, undermines one of the strongest literary arguments employed by Christians over the centuries to support the historicity of the resurrection in which they believe on faith. The specificity and novelty of the idea that the Messiah would die on Friday and rise on Sunday. So he believes there is a Jewish belief in a resurrected Messiah rising in three days. And BM asserts that Christians have argued the resurrection of the Messiah as a unique event, never believed by the Jews, and this is the strongest argument for the resurrection. Well, how do we respond to this? Well, first of all, there are 87 lines on this tablet, but the key sentence, line 80, key words are missing. Most scholars agree that it's not possible to know precisely what these words on line 80 are. It could be saying this, Kevin, in three days there will appear a figure. In other words, a figure will arise on the scene. However, even if Cole's translation is correct, Kevin, even if it is correct, it does not threaten the resurrection. It only highlights the dispute among the Jews of that day. Some believed in a Davidic Messiah conquering king, while some believed in a priestly suffering Messiah. And Cole's translation was to show that some of the Jews who believed in a suffering Messiah believed he would die and rise from the dead. And some who believed in the dying Messiah believed that he would rise in three days. Now, Christians have long taught, and that, and there are passages in the Old Testament that taught the Messiah would die and rise from the dead. Isaiah 53 Daniel chapter 9. Therefore, it shouldn't be that shocking to find a small Jewish sect here that believed in a dying and rising Messiah. In fact, Luke 24, Luke states that Jesus explained to the disciples on the road to Emmaus that this is what the Old Testament taught, that the Messiah would die and rise again. Finally, the strongest argument for the resurrection is not the uniqueness of a resurrected Messiah. 
It's the historical evidence. So this discovery in no way threatens the indisputable facts that we went over at the beginning of the show. It does not provide an alternative explanation. Even if the Jews believed in a dying and rising Messiah, Simon the rebel did not do it. Jesus actually accomplished it and this is the fact that must be accounted for. So here is another theory that purports to challenge the historical integrity, the historicity of the resurrection and this is another discovery that does not threaten the resurrection. Well, Pat, we'll just wait for some more conspiracy theories and um, come in here and let you address them as well. Looks like these conspiracy theories fail time after time. Yes, Kevin, you know, what's interesting is that they seem to come out at Christmas time or every Easter. So we can expect more conspiracy theories, more creative theories to be coming up over the horizon. But when we look at the historical evidence... Uh, there is compelling historical evidence for the resurrection, and the resurrection of Christ has not been defeated, and I don't think it will be defeated by any more new arguments that will come. Well, thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers today with Pat Zuckerman, and our prayer is that we answer the hard questions that all of us ask, and that we equip you to know what you believe and why you believe it. And if you're a seeker or a skeptic, we hope we've challenged you with the various evidences which support the claims of Christ. There are a multitude of resources available on our website evidenceandanswers.org interviews with leading scholars past shows that you can download and we deal with topics from atheism to zen buddhism to islam to the occult the cults agnosticism and contemporary issues which faces today and by the way when you purchase our resources you keep pat zuckerman speaking out all over the world help support a quality apologetics program for radio and podcast and pat's speaking engagements on college campuses and churches all over the world evidence and go there today evidence and for pat zuckerman i'm kevin harris thanks again for listening 